if you will, Hebrews chapter number 7, and I'm excited about getting back here uh, to this passage. Appreciate Pastor Aaron filling in last week, because we were not feeling well, and uh, a little physical crash, but nonetheless, we're excited to be back here in uh, Hebrews chapter 7. If you need an outline, I hope you grabbed a prayer bulletin number one, but if you don't have one of those, Brother John Meyer is going to head down the middle aisle. If you need an outline, we sure would like for you to, to grab one and uh, follow along with us, and uh, we are, won't, uh, surprisingly, we're not spending a ton of time here in Hebrews chapter 7. We sped through pretty well, and uh, specifically the latter part of the chapter. We'll finish it up tonight, and uh, then uh, next week move on to Hebrews chapter 8. Kind of hard to believe, but I want you to have an outline. It's been a couple weeks, uh, excuse me, been a couple weeks since we were here in Hebrews chapter number 7, and so we'll do a little review tonight. It won't be extremely long, but I think it, obviously, it certainly flows the entirety of the passage. You remember, uh, beginning initially as we talked about this chapter, we, we've seen the superiority of the Melchizedek priesthood, verses 1 through 10, essentially, and that, that kind of laid the, the groundwork as at the end of chapter 6, we know, and several times over, it's talked about Christ being after the order of Melchizedek, part of the priesthood of Melchizedek flowing from that. So then he establishes, the author of Hebrews here, I, had to believe, I believe to be Paul, establishes, okay, here's the superiority of the order of Melchizedek. Now that's the foundation that we have, the perspective that now you and I can understand uh, through that multifaceted superiority that as Christ comes through that superior order of priesthood. Then we understand the second natural flow from that is the superiority of Christ's priesthood. Well, that's where we began looking at verses 11 through following. To familiarize ourselves, to remind ourselves what we're talking about, let's look at verse 11. We'll read down through verse 16. It says this, If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, then the parenthetical phrase, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek, and not be called after the order of Aaron, okay? One of the first things we noticed here was that the subject matter, you remind uh, what we talked about last time, the subject matter of this passage is another priest. We see that in verse 11. It's going to be repeated in verse 15. It's repeated in other part of the passages, okay? Verse 12, for the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, that tribe, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident, and I love that statement. It's, it's obvious, there's proof, there's evidence here, it's far more evident. For that after the similitude of Melchizedek there ariseth, here it is the statement again, another priest. Who is made not after the law, the carnal commandment, or fleshly human commandment, but after the power of an endless life. Okay, we'll stop there. We talked about this terminology of another. I like it. It's, it means a, 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 another, but of a different kind, right? It's, a, it's different. It's not of the same make and nature and so forth. And so it, it's a unique use of this word. It, it's, it's a fantastic Greek word that adds a little nuance to it that we don't often get with the word another. Okay, it is another similar in just a few things, but it is different in many things. And so hence this priest is different than the priests that have gone on before. We've seen that. And I would say this, that really sets the tone for the remainder of this passage. Okay, it really just says this. Here, here, let, me, let me show you, the author is essentially saying, let me show you through comparison and contrast how this priest, this other priest, this another priest is superior. And so we have that play out in this passage. The first thing we saw, letter A, you saw it, we mentioned it here, the tribe, right? And uh, he was of a different tribe. 
We know in the Old Testament, it was established by the Old Testament law that the only way you became a priest was to be of the tribe of Levi, a descendant of Aaron. And so there's no other exceptions to that. It was non-negotiable, we described it as um, last time, and uh, it was a non-negotiable law in that sense. And so that was the, really the only required qualification to some degree. Yet, as we just read, Jesus Christ was of the tribe of Judah. So if he was of the tribe of Judah, that presents a little bit of a concern, an issue, a a question, shall we say. So that's where we continue to flow in the passage, and it certainly answers that, okay? Letter B, we talked about the testimony. The Old Testament law made men priests, but Christ is made priest by a declaration of God. Uh, The law of God established uh, the tribes of Levi, the Levitical line, if we could put it this way, Aaron is priest. It was a human commandment given for humans, and yet it was a law nonetheless. Look down at verse 28. You remember the first part of verse 28 says this, For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity. Okay, Humanity, infirmity. Um, These are flawed priests, as it's saying there. Okay, So the priesthood could not be changed until the law is changed. That's an important point. The law had to be changed. It had to be set aside. It had to be replaced with a new law or declaration. In other words, God had to say, okay, now I'm establishing a different order that is much greater and much better. That's where verse 12 came in that we just read. Notice it again, verse 12. What it say? The priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity of what? A change also of the law. Look down at verse 18. You remember this passage here. For there is verily, and here's the big word, a disannulling of the commandment going before, or excuse me, of the commandment, yes, going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. Okay? We talked about that statement, disannulling. Uh, it's a good one. It literally means to set aside, disannul, replace it with something else. And we expounded upon that. In verse 17, he uses the word testifieth. That's where we get this idea of testifieth. It's a testimony of God. Uh, he quotes Psalm 110, verse 4, one that is quoted often. And uh, we see that he's referring to an oath. Okay? And uh, in that oath, it's a solemn promise. We see that statement repeated. We'll read a couple verses here where that terminology of oath is used again. But it, uh, the oath of God, the declaration of God. And we made this statement. And I think this is good for us to understand because we see the truth of it, the reality throughout the Scriptures. And let me just say this. It is true today. What is that? Well, we made this statement. Only the Word of God can set aside and replace the Word of God. Only the Word of God can set aside and replace the Word of God. Okay? Be careful. We have so many books written. We have so many people proclaiming to have uh, extra uh, biblical revelation and things that contradict the Scriptures. And we have to be careful as followers of Jesus Christ, disciples of Christ, because God's Word, we believe and understand that we have the complete revelation of God. So, so be careful. Okay? There's a multiplicity of books. Things become, shall we say, fads. Okay? There's a fad that we went through about angels. You remember that? TV shows, and don't admit if you watched them and things like that, touched by it. Okay? We, we went through this fad, right? And boy, we, you see this picture, you see it described in, in things that don't match up the Scriptures. Now, wait a second, what's correct? And I tell you, let every man be a liar. God is truthful. So stick to his word, okay? Fads have come up recently, I'd say the last couple decades of what? Well, I was in heaven, heaven for 90 seconds. Can I just tell you, if you were in heaven for 90 seconds, you've got to be the most miserable person ever living on earth the rest of the time. Amen? I mean, you've got to be. I don't think God would be so cruel. I really don't. So be careful what people try to teach you. Well, I saw heaven. Heaven's like this, and heaven's like this, and heaven's like this. Be careful the extra revelation. 
that people speak of that contradicts God's word, that says something that God's word does not support or encourage. See, friend, the reality is only God's word can set aside or replace God's word. And so he did. That's why we have the Old Testament, the New Testament, <laughs> the Old Covenant, the New Covenant. God came along and he said, okay, here's, here's something better. Here's something that, that, that's going to be better for you and, and uh, much more complete. It's not a shadow of things. It's not a, a shell of things to come. Here's the real thing. And so we understand that. We saw that. Important point. Look at verse 20 and 21, if you will, with me. Notice a statement. Inasmuch as, not without an oath, he was made high priest. Okay? Parenthetical phrase, verse 21. For those priests were made without an oath. Speaking of the earthly priests of the Old Testament. But this, speaking of Christ, with an oath by him that said unto him, by God himself. And here's that quote again. The Lord swear and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay? So that declaration, that oath of Christ being of that order. Right? We made this statement. They were, the ones of the uh, earthly priesthood were made such by a law that was no longer valid. Why? It was disannulled. Hence, verse 12 says, something's got to happen to this law. Something's got to open the doorway for there to be a greater order of priesthood, a greater uh, thing that God points to of priesthood, and so he does. That law has been disannulled. It's no longer valid, and Jesus Christ is declared a priest by the eternal all-power for God, which then sets him up to be an eternal priest, a priest forever. And we saw that passage. Look at it, verse 22. Notice the statement. Okay, all right. Um, by so much was Jesus made surety of a better testament. Okay, down payment, a surety, and uh, a guarantee. Here's the guarantee. It's written down. Here's the guarantee that you're going to have a better testament, the better covenant. And I love that picture, that, that statement there. Okay, here's another comparison and contrast. Let us see the tenure. Right? Here we get the, into that eternality of it. The Bible says here in the passage, we'll see in a moment, verse 16 alludes to it. The power of Christ's priesthood is found in his endless life. While the priest, uh, the priest priesthood of the Old Testament ended with death. Look at verses 23 and 24, building upon verse 16, which already alluded to his, the power of his endless life. Look at verse 23 again. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. Okay, So there was an a ending to their priesthood. They had to pass it on, as we mentioned. Verse 24, but this man... Because he continueth forever, hath an everlasting priesthood. And uh, his tenure is everlasting. Uh, they were many. Jesus Christ is but one, and that is sufficient. They died and were no longer priests. Therefore, there was a great need for many priests. They'd have to pass it on. They didn't continue by reason of death, it says. That priesthood had to be passed on to someone else that was a, of the tribe of Levi. But not so with Christ. We said in the statement here, he has the power um, of an endless life. And uh, uh, he's eternal, he, immortal, a statement he continueth forever. And what, what is the outcome of that eternal priesthood? He has an unchangeable priesthood. It's unchangeable. And we, we talked about uh, the idea of what that means. The Greek word literally means unable to be violated. You can't change it, okay? It, it's not liable to be passed on to a successor, okay? I like the picture of it. Uh, it, it it's not uh, violatable, okay? It's not able to be violated. Literally, the idea is you can't, uh, you ever enter into a contract. You ever enter into an agreement. You ever sign something and you can't alter it. That's kind of the picture here. He is an unchangeable priesthood. Nothing will change the fact that Jesus Christ is your priest. And he is such forever. 
My friend, I'll tell you, you and I, as we read this, we may not be Jewish. We may not have the background and the context that a Jewish reader would look at this from. But you and I sure do have the context of this simple truth. Jesus Christ is our Savior and our High Priest. We could ask for no greater, no better. So as we read this passage, and I'll tell you, every time we come to it, I just get excited because this is such great truth for you and me. It ought to thrill our hearts. You know, I, I, I'm thankful that there were great high priests of the past, but I sure am thankful that none of those high priests are mine. I'm thankful that Jesus Christ alone is, and he forever will be. I think that's crucial. You know, really, uh, many of you who studied end times and eschatology, uh, they are m- ensuring meticulously that they are following the line of the high priest so that when the temple is fully engaged in ministry and activity, the Jewish faith, that they will have a line of high priests to minister there. Uh, they are keeping track of that because they think that they need to have that. I'm so thankful you and I don't have to worry about that. Our, we know who our high priest is. This passage secures that and understands that his tenure is that. I like that this statement. It's non-transferable, right? As we think of a warranty or something else, uh, something warrantied only to the original buyer or whatever the case may be. That's the meaning of the word here. It's non-transferable not because it doesn't have to be. He's eternal. That's the good news. This is the positive side of that. Then look at verse 25. We talked about this, and we're almost done with our review, but I think it's a powerful review for us. It says this, Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost, that come unto God by him, okay? Seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. And I love that statement. I, I told you before, I love the statement uh, dealing with the efficacy of Christ's priesthood. Provides permanent and perfect salvation while the priesthood of the Old Testament could only provide the terminology here is incompleteness. And the statement here is um, uttermost, right? And uh, man, what a powerful statement, right? Uttermost means all complete. It literally is that word perfect again. And he alone can make our salvation perfect. We talked about the, one of the minor themes or sub-themes, subplots of the book of Hebrews is that term perfection, making something perfect. We see it flow throughout all of Hebrews. And you've seen it multiple times here. It was mentioned in verse 11. It's mentioned several times over. This word means it perfectly complete. Perfectly complete. You want to combine the two terms. And uh, we are saved to the uttermost. What a great description of our perfect salvation. And uh, that's what Christ does for you and I. Okay? And yet, if we're doing compare and contrast, what does the Levitical priesthood provide? What does the priesthood of Aaron provide? Well, look at verse 11. Notice what it says again. If, therefore... Perfection were by the Levitical priesthood. What further need was there for another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron, right? If they could provide complete, perfect salvation through their ministry, wouldn't there, uh, there wouldn't be any need for another priest, would there? Exactly, you're right. They could not provide that. In fact, verses 18 and, and 19 kind of gave us that description, right? That commandment, look at it again, the commandment going before for the weakness in unprofitableness thereof. There's a disannulling of that commandment. Why? Because it's weak. It's unprofitable. It does nothing for you. It, it, it cannot do what you need. So it's weak. And so the very first part of verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. And here's where we left off last week. It was a simple statement, but yet its truth is profound. The law was weak and unprofitable. The priesthood that flowed from it. Why? Not because God gave an erroneous law, an incapable law. But the Bible tells us there is none righteous, what? No, not, 
Okay, none of us could keep it. We're imperfect beings. Therefore, because of the weakness, or as verse number 28 speaks of, the infirmity of mankind, that law is basically profitless for us other than bringing us to Christ, helping us to realize our great need of a Savior. Because the law could not save us in that sense. It only revealed our failures and that we have fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, we needed a, a savior. We, we needed a high priest who could come and offer a sacrifice that could atone for us once and for all. We made the last statement as we finished up two weeks ago. It was woefully weak, as unprofitable for any man, not because the law is bad, because of the human weakness and um, infirmity. Okay? Now moving on, and again, I, I think it's crucial for us to have reviewed all that because that sets the table for this next part. Look at the rest of verse 19. Okay, it says that the law could not make us perfect. So true, but it doesn't stop there. It says this, but the bringing in of a better hope did. I like that thought. And then it goes on to expound upon that better hope and what it did. By the which we draw nigh unto God. Okay, you see letter A-E there, the simple word is access. Access, we've been given, gifted, privileged with access. What kind of access? Well, the statement makes it clear for us. Christ brought a better hope, I love that word, better hope, admitting us into the presence of God, while the Old Testament priest could only represent us, a person, the Jew, into the presence of God, and that he only did occasionally periodically now as we've studied here these last few weeks several weeks now this passage this this verse has become one of my favorite okay and uh, if you'd ask me i have a lot of favorite verses just like i have a lot of favorite hymns but reality is i love this passage i love this verse because of what it says the comparison that is made the the contrast the first part shows what the inadequacy of the Levitical priesthood, any human priest, it shows the inadequacy, the incapability of that priest to do anything for us. It cannot make us perfect. It makes nothing perfect. Um, we get that. We understand that. What they offered was temporary. But there is more to the verse. God has gifted mankind with something more. What was previous was temporary. It was a fill-in-the-gap kind of measure. It was because sinful mankind could never do what only a perfect lamb of God could accomplish. And the more that God offered was in those four letters, hope. A better hope. A better hope. And I like to put it this statement. The personal and continual is better than the representative and temporal. The personal and continual. It's personal. It's, it's you and I can now draw nigh to God, the verse says. It's personal. It's continual because now we have the opportunity because we have an eternal high priest that we can draw the guide to God today, yesterday, tomorrow, for the rest of eternity. It's, it's personal. It's continual. The Old Testament was, well, it was representative. I would use the term vicarious. It was someone else representing me to God. It was a, uh, the idea I couldn't go into that place where God's presence was uh, displayed here on earth. A priest had to do that, a representative, and it was temporal. <laughs> okay, they could only do it a certain time of the year and, and such. We'll talk more about that here in a moment. Okay? If I could give you an illustration, I would put it this way. Have you, have you ever had your... Uh, you ever lost your license or you ever have your license renewed? 
and you went to the uh, Secretary of State, and uh, um, you went in there to get a new license or whatever it may be. Maybe it's a tag for a car. And you went in there, and uh, as you did, yeah, you got issued a temporary license, right? A piece of paper or something that, that is serving as your license, and yet it wasn't nearly as good as the real thing. And you had to wait for the mail to deliver, right? And uh, your biggest fear was somebody didn't get your mail and take your license before you got it, right? And so the idea was... Hey, Okay, here you have this temporary thing. It was, it was like a license, but it wasn't the, the, uh, the full thing. It, wasn't, it didn't have all the features. It, didn't have all the, the, uh, it couldn't do everything that the regular license could do, the real thing. It was very much representative. It wasn't the real thing, but it would do the job for now. And my friend, that is really a great picture. Because it's meant to replace what, you know, when you receive your actual license in the mail, then you destroy the temporary one. You get, it's, yeah, it's disannulled, right? It's no longer good. And it may even have a, a date on there. It's no longer good. And now you've got the real thing with all the full features, with all the full benefits. And, and that's literally a great picture of what we see explained to us here. There's access. Where that temporary license means uh, some places would not, you can't, uh, we can't accept that. It has to be the real thing. And, and maybe that's happened to you before. It's happened to me before. We had a temporary license. Well, come back and bring your real license when you get it. And uh, things like that and, and, and such. You know, the idea of access, now you and I have that access. It's part of the point here. Look at the end of the verse, would you? Here's the better hope. It has a vehicle or means, um, or it is a vehicle or the means for something. And this would hit home with the Jew. We're going to park here a while tonight as we close out Hebrews chapter 7. But I want you to understand what this simple statement meant to a Jew. When Paul would write himself having been a Jew and having the context and background of a Jew, he says this, we can draw nigh to God. Yes, spiritually in our hearts and our minds, but even in a sense, he's thinking, alluding to the reality of physically going to heaven one day to be with him. But this is a whole new concept for the Jewish mind. He's saying you can draw nigh personally. There'd be no more regulations. And immediately the Jew would think of the temple or the tabernacle in the wilderness, the uh, Solomon's temple. And, and, and if you know much about that, and even today's temple in Israel, there are, there are sections that you couldn't go into. There, in the old one, there was the outer court. And you were allowed in there if you were going to offer a sacrifice and things like that. And then, then the old tabernacle and eventually the temple, there was the holy place. Now the holy place, you and I could not have gone unless we were a priest. All the priests could enter there, and they would take the sacrifices, many of them, and the showbread and some other things that were uh, there and, uh, in the holy place. And then inside that was another sectioned off, or cordoned off section, that was known as the Holy of Holies. And there, as we well know, only the, the high priest could go in there, and he could only do so on that special day of atonement, one time a week. And now Paul is literally saying, hey, Jew, we have a high priest that has given us all-inclusive access. He has made it, uh, the door open for you and I to draw nigh to God. And, and for the Jews, like, whoa, 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 I'm not a high priest. I can't do that. I, I can't even go to the holy place, let alone the holy holies, where the very presence of God was manifested or on display. I, I couldn't do that. So as the Jew reads this passage, and you and I might somewhat 
read over or just understand it, but doesn't hit home for us. But when he reads this verse and it speaks of the reality of you and I in verse <laughs> in that verse having the ability to draw nigh to God in verse 19. This was a mic drop moment in a sense. This was attention getting. This was something that would have really uh, kind of set back the, the Jew to think that they now had access of God without the need, need of a priest. It was life changing for them. Why? Okay, let's put it in context that you and I can understand. Every Jew knew that enter into, enter into the Holy of Holies without permission was quickly met with the penalty of death. Okay? If you drew nigh to God in the sense of the temple and the tabernacle, that, that was met with the penalty of death. You, you could not de- do that. Only a high priest could do that. He could do it on a very limited basis, one day out of every year, uh, out of every 364 days and a quarter. Uh, every year, okay, could he draw nigh, and there had to be specific, very strict instructions followed, or he too would face death. Now, there's a lot of tradition, there's a lot of things that surrounded that. The high priest going in on the Day of Atonement. Some have surmised that even what is described as a unique and rather interesting part of the high priest's robe, um, kind of, oops, hang on a second, we'll get there. Can you bring me back up to that? I don't know, thank you so very much. Okay, and uh, describe a unique part of the, the outfit there, and uh, what's cut off there is the word robe. <laughs> okay, and uh, you see that there in Exodus chapter 28, verse 33. Notice the verse, if you will, Exodus chapter 28, verse number 33. And beneath upon them, speaking of the high priest robe, that was an uh, extension uh, of the ephod and things there. Notice what it says. And beneath upon the hem of thou shalt make pomegranates of blue and of purple and of scarlet, round about the hem thereof. And bells of gold between them round about. Now, many of us have been kind of enamored with this description of the high priest in their robe and what was at the bottom, the alternating pomegranates and gold bells tied in there and, and sewn in there, if we could put it that way. Okay? So, what was the purpose of the bells? We'll talk a little bit about that. There's a lot of thoughts and tradition out there. But God tells us himself what was the purpose of the bells. He does so a couple of verses later. Um, the reason for the bells, verse 35, says this, and it shall be upon Aaron to minister, and his sound shall be heard when he goeth in into the holy place before the Lord, and when he cometh not, and then it adds a a, a rather scary statement, that he die not, that he die not. Now, a lot of conjecture here. Some have said this, that when the bell stopped ringing, right, okay, um, they would know that he had passed away, that he had died, that God had struck him down. Because why? Because he had had sin in his life. He had entered the Holy of Holies unworthily, whatever the case may be. The idea, and um, many hold to it, that the bells provide an audible cue to those outside of the tabernacle of where the high priest was at and such. So think about it. Let's put it in context. The Jew reading this, that we can draw an eye to God, he's like, man, do you realize what we had to go through, the rigmarole for even the high priest to go in the Holy of Holies back in the day? You're telling me now, Paul, that I can go and I have access to God myself, that I can approach God, I have access, and we don't have to go through all of this? So that's the context of, of what you and I are thinking about and considering even here. You see... Some Jewish experts, too, when they take this verse, they, they relate it to the idea of coming before a king unannounced. 
And the idea of simply when that happened, and we know in the story of Esther and other plays, unless that scepter was extended to you, you're dead, right? Penalty of death. If you entered into the throne room of a king unannounced, uninvited, and there often in, and we think of a king's court, they would have a herald or somebody saying, and now entering and now approaching the throne, so-and-so. And so they'd have to be presented. They'd have to be uh, announced, if you could put it that way. And so some believe that this is an illusion. The sound of the bells was an illusion to that same idea coming before the king of king and lord of lords, uh, signifying the priest approach to God like the herald in a court would do, announcing a person. Likewise, when the priest entered into the, the Holy of Holies, and again, the Holy of Holies, representative, Shekinah glory, the very presence of God, the manifestation of the presence of God. One of the other things the high priest had to do, according to scriptures, was he would take off of the altar, he would take a censer, and that censer would have on it burning coals. He would also, in his other hand, take some sweet incense, and as he entered into the Holy of Holies, he would put the incense on those coals, and it would burn, and it would produce a cloud, a smoke, if you would put it that way, a cloud of smoke uh, in that. Why? You say, well, what, what is the purpose of that? What, why would God say, okay, he needs to grab a censer, he needs to put coals on there, he needs to uh, uh, put the incense on there as he enters into the Holy of Holies? It's quite an interesting description, a unique, similar phrase. Notice it in Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 13. And he shall put the incense upon the fire, the coals that he has before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense, the smoke that would arise from it, may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony. Now notice, here's the statement again, that he, that he die not. That's interesting. Okay, so he had to put the bells on his, on his robe and whatever the purpose, whether that be announcing his entrance and his leaving or whether it's because so they could know if he died or not or whatever the case may be. Now also God says, listen, when you come in, high priest, when you come in just once, once a year, one person out of an entire nation, once you come in, you need to make sure that there is a cloud of smoke burnt by the incense that covers what? What did the verse say? What does it cover? The mercy seat. And the Holy of Holies, there's the Ark of the Covenant, right? The mercy seat. There on the mercy seat sat the Shekinah glory, the very representation of the presence of God. Now, don't miss it. As even in their own descriptions, the Jews believed the purpose here was that it would cover so that man would not gaze upon the very presence of God and so forth. You know what? The Bible does speak about that even God himself says, you can't look on my face or you'll die. It says that in the Scripture. In the New Testament, no man has seen God, it says, lived. Okay, so we see that this is probably preparation in that sense or a picture of that. And as I said, the, the, Jews, the Jewish tradition of old is the thought that the cloud of smoke was to cover the Shekinah glory, the presence of God, hiding it from view so that he would not die. Now, now think about it. Now Paul comes to a Jew and says, Great, guess what? You get to go in the Holy of Holies. Whoa, whoa. Do you realize what we had to go through before to come into the Holy of Holies? Do you realize the rigmarole, the things that, that had to be done just so that the high priest could go once a day or once a year for the whole nation? There's other traditions that crept in too. You certainly may have heard them. Different traditions and beliefs surrounding the entrance of the Holy of Holies, the presence of God, they've crept up. I, I like this description, okay? According to tradition, during the last couple centuries of the temple's existence before it was destroyed, a gold or scarlet rope was tied to the high priest's foot on the Day of Atonement. Okay? Another priest standing in the holy place tended the other end of this rope. If the high priest's sins were not atoned for properly... 
um, uh, then God would strike him dead when he entered the presence of the Shekinah, the glory of God, that filled the Holy of Holies. Since access to that part of the temple was strictly forbidden then, they couldn't go and retrieve the body. The priests felt they needed a way to retrieve the body of the high priest if necessary. Okay? Again, this is tradition. We, we don't know the full description. We don't find it in Scripture, so I'd be very careful. In fact, um, some say that's a tradition that's based upon a, a, a writing that's called the Zohar. What is the, the Zohar? Okay? Well, the Zohar was a commentary of Hebrew Scriptures um, that was um, part of, that is part of, uh, and a source of the beliefs of a, a system of beliefs called Kabbalah which is a mystical form of Judaism, okay? And I, I just show you this to, to, to share with you some of the traditions that have arisen and so forth. And according to Kabbalah, the text was written by in the 2nd century A.D. by a, a gentleman named Shimon Baryoki. And uh, supposedly, here's where it certainly falls apart, and we would not trust it. Again, this kind of goes to what we talked about before. Uh, supposedly, um, Baryoki, if I'm pronouncing that right, either way, it's fun to say it that way. Um, supposedly, he got visions from the angel Gabriel to record secret power knowledge about interpreting the Torah, okay? So immediately bells and whistles are going off and in such extra revelation and so forth. But in one passage of the Zohar, uh, it describes the high priest entering the Holy of Holies and describes as such that a knot of rope of gold hangs from his leg from uh, fear perhaps he would die in the Holy of Holies and they would need to pull him out with his rope. Now, I, I share that. Most Christians and many Jewish scholars dismiss, obviously, that source of that tradition. However, many of them will say, well, there's certain things about it that are true, even though a lot of the teachings of it are wrong, and some believe that this statement would be correct, that they did that in those last couple centuries of the Temple of Love. You say, Pastor Henry, what's the point? I even put that in the outline. The point. What is the point? The point is this. Every Jew, when they thought about entering into the very Holy of Holies, the presence of God, there was fear, there was reverence, there was awe that was very real. When they thought, wait a minute, Paul, you're saying that this high priest, not only he himself is, has access interceding on our behalf, but he's made a way for us to go in the Holy of Holies, to enter into the very presence of God. Whoa, whoa, Jude, uh, uh, Paul, are you serious? How can that be? Do you realize what we had to go through in years past? And how, how could we do that? Hence the presentation here in Hebrews, the extensive presentation, the uh, added and increased as the book or the letter proceeds to this truth. It wasn't taken lightly. The concept that we could draw nigh to God would have been mind-blowing for the Jew or the one that participated or, or observed Judaism. It presented a wonderful, unthinkable privilege and experience, but it demanded more explanation. The Jew would say, how can this be? How, Paul, you've got to tell us how in the world that we can enter in, draw nigh unto God. How is that possible? Look at verse 25. He explains, notice it. Wherefore, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. Now notice, here's the statement. Here's the added explanation. Seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. So it's an ongoing ministry, he ever liveth, unlike the priest that died. Verse 26, for such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, okay? Who needeth, verse 27, we'll read the first part, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's. How can it be, Paul? 
Paul says, here's how it can be. Number one, the description is this. He is separate from sinners. He is holy. He is undefiled. He is unmarked by sin. He is separate from sinners. Unlike the priests of old, what they have to do, they have to go offer sacrifices for themselves first before they could even entertain the idea of interceding on the behalf of the people. Before they could even think of going to the Holy of Holies on behalf of someone else, they had to take care of their own sin first. Christ did not have to do that. He's holy and undefiled. He's separate from sinners. There's no need for that on his part. It sets him apart. He has access to God because not only is he God, but he is perfect. And that really is the introduction here, or the, uh, I scared you there, not the introduction of the sermon, but the introduction to the concept that he is a perfect Savior. He's a perfect Savior. He is, he is everything you could ask for in a Savior and a high priest. There's nothing left. There's nothing that you can ask for more of him. He's perfectly holy. He's righteous. And in the access that he ever liveth to make intercession for us. Now, I love that statement. Okay? So, uh, one of the, the great illustrations we have of God making intercession for a believer is what we're studying on Sunday mornings. So, right? Okay? Remember. Satan came and, and uh, said, oh, okay, well, uh, uh, let's, let's try somebody. Let's test somebody. And God said, well, have you considered my servant? Job. And you remember what happened? Boy, Satan would have taken his life. Satan would have done anything. And yet God put up what? Parameters. Parameters. God said, no, 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 Satan, you're not doing that. That's not going to happen. This, you can only do this up to this. You can affect his health, but you can't take his life. You can do this. So, so God... In that sense, could you imagine, who do we know that comes, or can we think about it? I shouldn't say imagine, we can certainly imagine, but you think of this. Who is called the accuser of the brethren? Right, okay, so we can picture, much like as we see in the, the book of Job, Satan coming before God and accusing you and I to God. Oh, look at that, Christian, look at that. Yet who is there in our defense? Jesus Christ, our Savior. His, he's interceding on our behalf. Whether it's simply as, well, yes, that's true, but that's covered by the blood. That's under the blood. My, my righteousness, has already, I've already paid for that. Or, or it's just simply him saying, hey, no, that's not true. And, and uh, this, he's interceding on our behalf. He's, he's going to bat for us, if we might describe it as such. And I don't know about you, but I sure am glad he went to bat for me today. But I'll tell you right now, I'm going to need him sometime this week probably, Amen. I'm going to need him to intercede on my behalf again and again and again. And what does he live for right now? He intercedes on our behalf. Until the day comes, until the day comes, God the Father tells God the Son, go and get your bride. And he comes to this earth, and he takes you and I as believers, and he gives us full and unmitigated all-inclusive access to God when we go to heaven. We are ushered into his presence physically. We've already enjoyed it spiritually. This has already been blown away. You and I have the ability to go. Do you realize what you and I have the ability to do? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In the Old Testament, what the high priest alone could do and go and offer the blood atonement, could offer the confession of sin. The, now you and I get the opportunity spiritually to do that every single day. That veil has been torn apart. This was mind-blowing to the Jew. You see, we understand that 
he continually intercedes. And through his interceding access, we have gained unprecedented, unprecedented access to God ourselves. We can draw nigh personally unto God. There's no more holy place here on earth. Amen. There's no more holy of holies here on earth. Amen. Every believer has been ushered into the very presence of God by a perfect Savior and high priest. What does he call it? It is a better hope, a biblical hope, a guaranteed Look at verse 27, the last part. We stopped at the colon or the semicolon there, the colon. For this he did once when he offered up himself. And boy, that says a lot too. You see, not only was he a perfect savior, but he was the perfect sacrifice. Every year that high priest had to go in, another, another goat had to be killed, another scapegoat had to be released. And, and every year this happened to happen, time and time again, not to mention the sin and trespass offerings that took place throughout the year and every day. And, and oh, again and again and again and again and again. And yet what does the Bible say about Jesus Christ? Hey, Jew, listen. Jesus Christ offered himself once. In fact, we would make this statement. He only offered it once, and yet... <laughs> It's still in effect. Still in effect. Reading several missionary letters today as we were preparing to put them here in our prayer bulletin, and it was neat to hear. In fact, I think Eric Bowman mentions it, and as they've tabulated in, in Africa here, and I think it was the letter we have in tonight, he tabulated, and there have been since his last letter, or whatever the case may be, in the last year or so, 10,000 people trust Jesus Christ. Among all the missionaries and the ministries there in Africa. Man, can I tell you, say, wow, you mean God is still saving people? You better believe he is. It's still efficable today. He, he's still saving people through the, the offering that he made on the cross of Calvary. It is still in effect. Aren't you thankful next week as we gather on Saturday and we, we work ourselves dead and tired? That if there's a soul sitting there on Saturday afternoon who comes to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they can be saved. They'll just hear the message. They'll respond in faith. They too can be saved by the offering that Christ made on the cross of Calvary so long ago. It was once and for all. It says that he has been, he has been consecrated, ordained, designated as our high priest forevermore. Look at verse 28. Notice that we've focused on the first part. Look at the second part. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath, there it is, that declaration again, the word of the oath, which maketh, uh, which was since the law, excuse me, maketh the son who is consecrated, dedicated, ordained forevermore. He's a high priest forevermore. My friends, we've just studied verses 11 and following. We've seen that it's a better testament. It's a better hope. He is, his is a perfect, unchangeable, continual priesthood. He alone can give perfect salvation, the uttermost salvation. And if you were to ask me, how would you summarize these verses? I'd have a hard time doing it, but if I had to, I'd put in a short, pithy statement, something like this. Ours, ours is a perfect salvation. Perfectly complete, as the word uttermost means. Because it was achieved through a perfect sacrifice, once and for all made by a perfect Savior and high priest. He was perfect. He was holy. He was undefiled. He was separate from sinners. He alone did this. He ministers on our behalf even now. He's there in heaven interceding on our behalf. I wonder today if Jesus Christ in heaven pleaded and asked for grace for you today.
mercy for you. Maybe in heaven today, Jesus Christ was active keeping something out of your life that would have devastated you. My friend, we have such a great high priest that intercedes for us evermore. That concludes chapter 7. Next week, we'll jump into chapter 8. Looking forward to it. I hope you are too. Let's